welcome to another episode of the Sweet Spot on a Farm podcast. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, you are embarking on a journey with me on which we are trying to find out what it means to be healthy. We will talk about healthy eating, healthy lifestyle, and we'll talk to people who are one way or another involved in the healthy wellness, food production, healthy eating businesses and my guests are primarily local small business owners who are trying to keep the nation healthy in their own way. Now everybody's take on what it means to be healthy, what it means to live healthily and eat healthily is very different and so it's really interesting to hear from the professionals. If you've listened to a few episodes before you know that There is a lot that all these people have in common. And it's not just that they're passionate about what they're doing, but they're all promoting the same thing. And that's to eat real food. And we talk a lot about food on this podcast. We share recipes. So I recommend to listen to this podcast with full stomach. You do not want to be listening to people talking about food when you haven't eaten. And we have a really exciting guest today on a podcast, but before I let you listen to him, I have some even more exciting news. If you haven't heard of the NI Fitness Show, then you have to go to www.nifitnessshow.com and check it out. And the big news is that I'm going to be there. I'm going to be at the NI Fitness Show. I'm going to have my own stall there and I'll be selling the Sweet Spot cookbook and talk to anybody who will want to talk to me. And I believe I'm doing a cooking demo as well on Sunday. So where and when it's happening? Oh, actually, I should probably tell you what it is if you haven't heard of it. So this is a really big fitness event that is going to be held in Belfast for the first time this year and it's all about the fitness body lifestyle mind anything and everything that has anything to do with health and fitness it's all going to be covered and it is happening on Saturday the 7th and Sunday the 8th of April 2018 from 10 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening So check it out guys, it is going to be massive and it's going to be awesome and I'm really happy to be part of it. Um, So yeah, that's the big news and now enjoy the podcast, here it goes. Episode 10, John McCormick of Helen's Bay Organic Gardens. To celebrate 10 episodes, I'm, I'm back where we started. We're at the Helen's Bay Organic Gardens farm and I'm sitting here with John. Hello, John. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Nice to see you again, Susanna. Nice to see you again. Nice to be here again. We're sitting again in the polytunnel. It's very different from when I was here the last time. You have a lot of winter lettuces growing here. I would never imagine that lettuce would do so well in wintertime. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were planted in the autumn and they sit there all winter growing very slowly. And then suddenly, um, once the temperatures move beyond the current four degrees as they are today, <laughs> um, they will start to grow very fast and we'll harvest them probably in about four weeks. Oh, mm. wow. We've been growing lettuce in the tunnels all, su- all winter. We Not lettuce, but that's lettuce. But we've been growing uh, winter salads, which are the, you know, rocket and mizuna and, uh, uh, and frilly mustard and mixing them together, making salad packs. And they grow right through the whole winter. And I think we have altogether 10,000 square feet of polytunnels. And I think we probably did, a, did about maybe 5,000, 6,000 salad packs this winter. Oh, wow. out of those tunnels and and that's by no means squeezing it you know it's it's a new thing for it because I've got the help labor on the farm now to be able to do that and uh, so I think we'll probably double that next year this is amazing actually because one of the things I always miss in the winter would be salads you know like a bowl mm. of salad that's something you imagine you associate with spring and summer mm. you know have a mm. nice fresh bowl of green salad and that's not something you think you can have in winter time unless it's imported and it's amazing that you guys grow it here and you have gorgeous salads over the winter time it is it's great and uh, what's good about it there's a variety of good things about it that, that interests me um both as a grower 
and as somebody who likes to eat food, <laughs> is that, number one, you can do it here in Northern Ireland. Um, we grow them, and, and what's interesting as a grower is that we grow them without fertilising the ground. You know, we fertilise the ground for the summer cropping, which is either tomatoes or beans or cucumbers, or, you know, we even grow carrots indoors and that. So we fertilise the ground uh, the previous spring, and then we grow a crop of summer vegetables, and then after that we grow a crop of winter vegetables, which means that the nitrate levels are quite low. And so therefore, that's always one of the risks of, of growing um, leafy greens in the winter, is the high nitrates. And we don't have that problem with these leafy salads, uh, simply because we're not fertilising before we grow. And they grow grand. And the second thing is, was a bit of research. Um, I, I'm, I have become a great fan of sauerkraut. I even make my own sauerkraut now. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look at you. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. I even have a picture of myself up on my Instagram making sauerkraut. Oh, oh I've seen that one, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I make uh, red cabbage sauerkraut as well as white cabbage sauerkraut. I love the red cabbage sauerkraut and a bit of caraway. But uh, I remember a survey that was done, or at least a scientific experiment done on gut bacteria years and years ago, where they took uh, 12 men who worked on a ranch, in cattle ranch in America, who had an appalling diet, and they tested them for their gut bacteria. And they all had appalling gut bacteria because they just ate appalling food. And so they then put um, six of them on... Eat, carry on eating as they were, but they all had to take one jar of a proprietary... Um, probiotic yogurt every day and then the other six had to eat one plate of raw salad every day and then after a month they took tests again to see where their gut bacteria was and what they discovered was that the um, proprietary probiotic yogurt people had their gut bacteria had hardly moved at all but the people who'd eaten a raw salad every day their gut bacteria had exploded into really good beneficial bacteria and so it's it, which which you know proves something that I'd already kind of guessed and knowed already anyway from previous um, things I'd read, which is that there that after even washing food, there's still a lot of very beneficial bacteria on raw food before you cook it, and so there are certain things like salads and you know and raw food that you can eat, um, which just is gives you bacteria, natural bacteria which are beneficial for you. And so that's why I think it's great to be able to produce salads right through the winter as well. So we can, as well as having nice ferments, we can also introduce a little bit of raw food into our diet. So I've been an advocate for years and years of, I, I love cooked food, but I always think it's important in the course of the week to have some raw food with it. So the winter salads really, really work well with that. And, and our salads, our salad mixes are just, um, just wonderful. And all you need to put on them is a little bit of olive oil and balsamic vinegar and away you go. It's delicious. I can confirm that because I have been buying your winter salads every week and they are just delicious. Do you know, I actually put them in my smoothies instead of spinach. All right. I just put, I just put, I think, what is it called? Endive? Is, is it endive? The no, no. It's it's oh. what our winter salad. Yeah, we have endive as well, yeah, which yeah. is the big green thing. On, okay, yeah, yeah, the big the green, light one. green one. And then there's the rocket and mizuna yeah. and uh, red frills. So rocket and mizuna is something I would eat as a salad in a mm. salad, or I would make pesto out <coughs> yeah. of it as yeah. well. Yeah, putting other herbs in it and such. Mm. But the endive is amazing in a smoothie. I mean, in a salad as well, but mm. um, I love endive and chicory, for example. That's just such a great combination. Mm. But stick it in a smoothie instead of spinach. Oh my God, it's so I think so it's a great tasty. idea. Yeah, yeah, it's it a great is idea. It's so tasty. Well, they don't, that's a really good idea because, you know, I, I remember some research in Germany that came up with the idea that, you know, spinach is a great food for you, but don't eat a lot of it mm. because it's very high in nitrates. And um, it, especially in the wintertime, it takes up the nitrates in the soil. So a little bit of spinach is good for you, but not spinach every day. So therefore, you'd, if, you, if you mix it, we'll have other things to use instead. I think it's much, much better. Since the last time I've been here, the weather hasn't been great this winter for you, has it? There's been a lot of rain, there's been a lot of wet. And, and I've heard you've been on the news recently talking about that. Yeah, um, we're relatively lucky I guess, because um, the fields that we grow our vegetables on are all 
close to a hard stone road, which means we can drive up to the gate, we don't go into the fields with machinery or tractors, and we do all our harvesting by hand. So um, anything like the potato harvest up in Kilmore Farm, that, that's all been done way in advance and it's in a cold store. So the stuff we're harvesting over the winter in the wet period is, is done by hand. So it doesn't matter if it's hail, rain or snow. We just put on the appropriate clothing and go out and harvest. And we have to harvest because we've got to have the stuff for everybody that week. Um, so, so we're very fortunate that way. But yes, it has been a very, very wet winter. And so anywhere where there has been, we, you know, close to, like, we have a road at the back here that we, that's, it's a stone road, but it has a lot of mud on it, normally soil that's quite hard. But in a winter like this, it's a bit like walking through World War I, one trenches because it's just mud, 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 mud everywhere. Um, and, and that's been difficult. In terms of the, um, the vegetables, the, it doesn't seem to have harmed them in any way. In fact, I think it's actually made things better. <laughs> We've got some of the best vegetables we've grown in years is this year and we don't have as many pests and diseases because they don't seem to survive so well things like aphids and that don't don't do well on wet um, on wet plants so i think a lot of our leafy greens that we have in the fields our kale and our cabbage um, and our kaleettes and our brussels sprouts uh, all those kind of things they're doing extremely well because being permanently wet, the insects that normally would feed on them won't feed on them because they don't li they like they need relatively dry conditions to do that. So it's been an advantage to us in some ways. But if I was growing, for instance, if I was a farmer who was growing uh, overwintered um, grain crops, I'd probably be tearing my hair out because when you drive around the country, the grain crops look appalling. I mean, they're just they're half drowned. They look like they're sort of drowned. Uh, they're struggling to get out of the ground. And the biggest problem with wet ground plants is the temperature drop. Wet ground is colder than dry ground. And it's that's the critical thing for the roots is to have um, a warmer soil to be able to grow. So we've had very poor growth on the the grain crops, the overwinter grain crops, and they, they look very miserable at this time. And hopefully with a bit of dry weather and some heat now coming up after this cold spell we're in at the moment. We're heading into March, so we will get warm days. Some of the nicest days of the year are in March. Uh, I think we'll see some. We'll see. We'll see a difference. We have to hope we'll see a difference. But it is worrying. It's worrying in two kinds. I have a brother who I uh, Skype once a month. He lives in Sardinia, and he's lived there for forty years. And uh, he he's a farmer as well. Grows vegetables uh, just for himself. He's actually he makes his living from making handcrafts. But uh, he bought himself um, a pigsty and converted it into a house. <laughs> and he bought himself a mountain. And he started with a wheelbarrow and a pickaxe, carving out terraces and planting them up. And has been doing it ever for 40 years. And every year he adds another terrace on. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. amazing. But I was talking to him anyway the other day. And like obviously, we talk a lot about growing vegetables because, and fruit because we both do it. And he was saying, he said, you know, it's, he said this year is going to be the biggest challenge ever because um, for water, while we have too much water, they've got too little. Mm. And uh, so uh, the whole of the southern um, Mediterranean is suffering from a drought with the result that he thinks many of his neighbours are already talking about they won't be growing, you know, their commercial crops this year because they won't have the water. The, the reservoirs are empty. The, um, the, it's been two years since I've had any decent rain. And he says he's using, he's lucky, he has his own spring, which he shares with a neighbour. So he gets it for one day and his neighbour gets it for the other day and they divert it back and forth between their tanks each day. So that's enough for him just to keep his vegetables going and to have a shower and do a bit of, um, you know, maintain the place. But uh, he says for the first time ever, he's having to water his trees to keep them alive. Trees on his land. He said trees trees that have been there for 40 years since he's been there, trees that he's planted himself, he said, are dying from the lack of water now. And he's watering trees, not just vegetables and fruit. And he's lucky to have the water to do that, but many haven't. And trees are dying because it's getting so. So, so climate change is with us, I'm afraid. It's, you know, it is really starting now to begin to show. We always thought it would be, you know, Polynesian islands would sink, you know, and a few others, maybe in Africa, a few spots. But it's, it's, it's global now. And I, I think we're going to, um, I think it's going to accelerate. Please God, it won't. I hate to be, I'm a half glass sort of, full sort of person. I never like to talk about glass being half empty. And I always like to be positive, but it does worry me.
it worries me that we just won't do what needs to be done to stop it in time. We were actually talking about it today with my partner, how the seasons have shifted. Cold snaps and snow and heavy, long periods of wet have always been a feature of our climate. But um, it is a reality that given all that, it's still overall warmer. Because Wisley have been doing, the Wisley Gardens in London have been recording plants for over 100 years. And they now have declared officially that the growing season is a month longer now than it was 30 years ago. What have you been growing actually over the winter apart from your salads and greens? What else is growing and what are you planting? Have you started yeah, preparing for yeah, the next season? Yeah, well, well, let's look and see. I mean, the, the way it works for us is that we sow, you know, in the spring right through. We start sowing in January and we finish sowing in the end of June, okay? And our main season for sowing is actually April, May and June. It's not now. Now it's all the early stuff. And we're, what we do is we sow stuff now for putting out into the fields. Uh, in, for, first of all, to put out into the tunnels. So uh, we, have st we, we have a heated glass house where um, we can raise seedlings starting in January already. And, um, and then we raise them to a certain point, which is about now, which is the end of February, sort of four weeks after germination. We take them down, we put them into glass frames here in the cold. So it's a, it's a, it's a glass frame inside a polytunnel, so it's very protected, but lots of light and in uh, slightly warmer conditions than if it was just in the polytunnel, so that they ca carry on growing and they're hardening off a little bit than from the heated glass house. So they harden up a bit. And then we take the glass off and um, in the daytime and we'll put it back on at nighttime uh, for the next four weeks. And that hardens them off and lets them carry on growing. And then we transplant them in the, uh, usually the end of March would be the first plants we get into the polytunnel. So we're planting lettuce and scallions and spinach and um, uh, and what else would we put in the tunnels? That's basically it in the tunnels, full of you know lettuce, scallions and spinach into the polytunnels in the very early stuff. And then uh, in April, we'll have ploughed and start making up the first beds for outdoor planting. And we're, we're doing much the same, planting this, the next generation of, of, of um, early salads and lettuce and stuff that we plant out then in April and the potatoes go in in April and we sow early carrots in April. Um, and then, but all that time we're still sowing, sowing, sowing things in, in a polytunnel, cold polytunnel, uh, for a bit of protection, it gets warm in the day, cold at night. And uh, so we were sowing all the different cabbage and broccoli and all the whole cabbage family type things, all the leeks, all the onions. Um, all that will get sown out um, in the course of March, April and May and then will over um, May, June, May and June get planted out into the fields. And we start cropping then, our first indoor crops are in May in the polytunnels and then we have our first outdoor crops in June and July and then August, September and October, November is, well August, September and October are our main, that's when we've got, we're drowning in vegetables, all the wonderful summer vegetables and the beginnings of the winter vegetables. And then the summer vegetables are finished usually by the middle to the end of September and we're into the winter vegetables, which is all the, you know, Savoy cabbage and um, January King cabbage and red cabbage and white cabbage. And then we've got five different types of kale and uh, we've got Brussels sprouts and kaylets and we've got leeks. And we've got then potatoes are already in store. We're digging carrots and parsnips um, every day um, from the fields. Uh, we leave them in the ground and dig them as we need them because it doesn't freeze over here. We're able to get out most weeks and, and harvest straight from the ground. And, um, and that keeps us going right through till we're still harvesting all ca kale, cabbage, sprouts, leeks, um, carrots, parsnips and winter salads. And that's right through the whole winter period. And now we're coming into spring. We'll manage for about another month with all those things. And then we go into the, what we call the hungry months, which is the um, April and May. We'll have a little bit of salads coming out of the tunnels in May, but we won't have any volume of vegetables till June again, even July. So you could say April, May and June are the hungry months over here when we can produce very little. But the promise of it is there because it's all gone out into the field in seedlings. It's being planted sown and planted during that time.
And that's this, that's the annual cycle here, year in, year out. I have quite a few people here now, uh, both working, and I have some volunteers as well. I have one, um, one woman who's studying horticulture, and she's using me as, um, as part of her uh, final year um, presentation work. So what she's basically doing is help is is writing a book about uh, more of it, not a book is the wrong word. She's writing a guideline, a blueprint, a blueprint to Helensby Organic Gardens. Oh, wow. that's what it is. So that uh, as a model of um, this kind of agriculture, which is growing f- for direct retailing, you know, to 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 a, gr- a community group of people who are buying off you. And or for a farm shop or for thing, not for wholesaling, for direct retailing, mm-hmm. which is very different than if you were wholesaling. You'd take five crops and you'd grow them on a very large scale and you'd sell double or three times the volume to make up the same amount of money. We grow, um, we grow a much wider range of crops and only have to grow half as many in order to be able to sell it at you know the retail price to you know, a, a reasonable n- number of people. So we're creating a blueprint of sowing calendars and planting calendars and t- cultivation techniques and how we build fertility. And so that's all happening now. So it's, all, it's, it's going to be available by the end of the year as a blueprint. Now that you talk about it, it actually hit me that it must be very different to grow food for direct sale than if you're a farmer who grows for big retail chains because there are certain guidelines that supermarkets have that everything seem, everything in a supermarket seems to be the same shape and the same size mm-hmm. and how the heck do you manage that when you're growing? It just looks like it came out of a manufacturing line rather than ground. Yeah, that's right. So I suppose that Growing and selling your vegetables the way you do allows you a large amount of freedom, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, the knobbly vegetables and the different sizes of vegetables work very well for us because we've got customers who take the knobbly doesn't really matter. They don't. My customers don't care if a carrot is slightly bent. Okay, it doesn't have to be perfectly straight, and they don't mind if they get three three smallish ones and two big ones or whatever. You know, they're, they're as long as they get the same volume of carrot that feeds their children every week. That's all they're interested in. Um, I think the the most, for me, um, the most important thing is that, you know, we've got three different sizes of bags, so we can use all the small cauliflower in the small bags, and we can use the very large ones in the large bags, because people buying a large bag is feeding a lot of people, and people buying small bags probably just feeding themselves, or, the, or just themselves and a friend, and... Uh, so that works really, really well for us. We we can do that. We can work with that, and therefore we have very little wastage. Very, very little wastage. Our compost heaps, you know, of wastage are tiny compared to what it would be on a big um, commercial farm feeding into a supermarket. Uh, so that's the advantage to it. And nothing gets wasted because everything stays on the farm, and it gets co- anything that is not ca- you know, good enough to be sold. I mean, we do have very have very strict criteria around quality. We do not send out bad food. You know, we try very hard not to. Uh, it's sometimes it, something might slip past you, you know, an onion that might look absolutely perfect and you take a knife to it and you realise it's rotten in the middle. How do you know that till you cut it open? Mm-hmm. So occasionally, very occasionally, we would get, uh, a customer might get something bad. Most of them know uh, that if they want to, that we will straight away give them a credit for it or replace it. Most of them don't ask us to do that because it doesn't happen very often, so they don't care. And and that's just a great way to um, that's a great way to grow food, and it's much more interesting. I mean, we I'm growing I'm growing over forty different crops, and the diversity of sowing and planting and hoeing and harvesting and delivering and packing all the things, it just makes for a much more interesting life than if you were just sowing, 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 sowing every day, planting, 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 planting every day, hoeing, 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 hoeing every day. You know what I mean? And then you're harvesting, 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 harvesting all winter. I mean, God, that would drive me mad. I couldn't do that, <laughs> you know. You mentioned wastage there. I think that's another very important thing in today's um, society as well. And it's another thing I was actually talking to someone about last week. What drives me absolutely crazy that... If I run out of your fresh vegetable, and I eat a lot of vegetables, but when I run out, I have no option. I have to go to the supermarket somewhere, mm. and everything is wrapped in these plastic bags. Everything is sealed. Everything is in these plastic sort of plates, pots, things. And we try not to 
leave too much wastage at home. So we actually fill our bin, we fill it up only once a week, but it's all full of these plastic bags and trays that are not recyclable and it drives me absolutely crazy. Mm. What I love about buying from retailers like yourself is not only it is organic, it's grown small scale, it's all the love and care is put into it, but also you don't have everything in these plasticky things. In these you containers, can, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can we, just yeah. put it in the bag and take mm. it home, and there's mm. no wastage. Well, that's 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 really interesting. I mean, I, I told we spoke. I spoke earlier about my attitude to life as always being a glass half full sort of person. You know, and when I look at the challenges that we face, uh, I think it's wonderful at the moment that the whole plastics issue has suddenly hit the headlines. Um, and and I, we have to address it. And and we're ju- we, you know we're not exclusive either. You know, organic farmers use plastic, and we've got to find ways of not using plastic. Um, it it is um, it's it's a huge huge challenge to change the way we've we've developed into this pattern of packaging and presentation and you know refrigeration and and delivering food in a way that's you know created such a big problem for us to now reverse all that okay um is something we have to do and um and that's a challenge for everybody including ourselves that's that's we're not we're not exclusive of this you know we still use plastic bags because how do you keep a lettuce fresh when you're delivering it to your customer okay it just it'll it'll wilt if you don't have it wrapped in something and there's nothing there's nothing at the moment alternative good enough other than plastic so we need to find ways to do that when i was young um, you, you, there was a market garden in the village and you know I would have been sent out by my mother to go up and she'd give us a wet tea towel and a box and we'd go up and we'd get some lettuce, wrap it up in the wet towel and pay her a couple of pennies and come back to the house and that would be the lettuce for the afternoon. It served two very good purposes. She got us out from out under her he- under her feet <laughs> and um, and we, we didn't, there was no plastic involved. You know, so... It was a win-win for everybody. And that's the way it used to be done. And I think really that's what's going to have to happen. And we're finding that. We're finding in our box scheme, which involves having to pack and deliver to people, we have to use plastic or cardboard boxes, which are also very high in, in a footprint, a carbon footprint. But in our farm shop and in our market stall, people bring their own bags and they're able to just take the stuff fresh and go away with it. So I, I just think that's possibly the way it's going to have to be going forward. Yes, no, exactly. I'm really fortunate that I live close to the market and you Mm. guys are there religiously every Saturday. So that's the way I do it. But I completely understand that obviously you deliver and you Mm. deliver to people who cannot come to the St. George's market um, or cannot come to the farmer's shop. So there obviously has to be a way to address this. I hope so. Um, You know, there's the big, the very big box schemes in England, you know, have put their hands up and said, you know, we're as guilty as everybody else and it's time now to change. And they're working very hard on it. They're investing money in it. I'm just watching them to see what on earth they come up with so that might help me. The most recent one, which we're, we're interested in, I actually wrote to Austria to try and get some information on it, is these, um, they're now making um, these vegetable nets from um, waste wood. Oh, wow. Yeah, from lignin. And lignin is biodegradable. So you can just throw it in the compost heap and within six months it'll be gone. So, so there, there, there is, there are, there are, but it's very expensive. But there are alternatives out there, and that's what we've got to find out, and, and we've got to learn how to use them. And, and I feel quite excited and challenged by the idea of having to change. I think it's, I don't see why we should sit in our laurels and just carry on as, as we've always done. We've just got to, we've got to embrace the change. And, and the great thing about this is that it's coming from consumers. You know, consumers are demanding that you know it's it's just no longer acceptable that birds and fish are dying in our oceans all over the place from plastic, and uh, and I remember a few years ago my wife and I went to India. This is our 60th birthday present to each other. Was a long, long lifelong desire to want to go and see India, and we went and we spent three months in India, but we were so shocked by the level of plastic bags everywhere. I mean, it was beyond your imagination. You couldn't, you couldn't imagine anybody could scatter that many plastic bags around the place. I mean, it was incredible how much plastic there was all over the place. And, you know, they have no bin collections. and Everything just throws everybody out. Everything out goes out onto the streets or into the hedgerows or into the ditches and, or at the end of the villages. At the end of villages, everything just gets dumped. 
they bring them, they put it into a plastic bag, bring it up and throw it to the end, in the middle and in the middle, and then the pigs and the cows and everything get busy tearing all the plastic bags apart to, to eat what's in it, and then the plastic bags just get scattered all over the place. I mean, it's it's beyond your wildest imagination. We've got to stop all that. We really do. These are the challenges, you know. Um, I always remember my father telling me, you know, don't get too worried about what's coming towards you, he said, because it's always been like that. He said, when Genghis Khan came over the hill, it wasn't much fun either. <laughs> so, you know, we, we face challenges, and every generation has, has, has challenges. We've got the challenge of climate change and resources and resource depletion. And we've got to redesign the way we do things around a more sustainable and sane way of doing things. That we don't pollute our oceans with plastic, that we don't deplete our soils from their natural minerals by over-exploiting them with artificial chemicals, that we don't spray everything with poisons that keep getting banned and a new one comes up, miracle cure, and then six years later it's banned as well, and another one comes up and six years later it gets banned, you know. We've got to stop all that. We've got to start being sane about preserving this this beautiful planet we have. Talking of which, I'd like to pick your brain about something. Last week I went to a screening of a documentary called Food Evolution as a part of the Northern Ireland Science Festival and for years I've been really struggling with forming an opinion on genetically modified foods. One of the things that that really somebody pointed out after the screening was that the documentary was full of scientists who spoke pro-GMO but nobody seemed to have interviewed or include um, an interview with scientists that are not so excited about GMO foods and from what I heard there are quite a few actually here in the UK and I'd be really interested in hearing their side of the story but you as an organic farmer because I know that organic uh, farming and genetically modified foods can coexist what is your opinion what, what do you make out of genetically modified foods they're they're banned under organic production um for a start I mean the very first thing if, if I'm looking at it purely as a non-scientist just as a farmer um, the the people who are producing genetically modified foods are the same people who are producing the chemicals that go hand in hand with them. Okay, and nothing that they've produced has been of benefit to mankind. It's only been of benefit to those companies. They have they have genetically modified crops so that the chemicals that they're set that are combat compatible with the chemicals that they sell. So that in order to use their crops, you have to use their chemicals. And it's all about their self-interest. It's not about feeding humanity. We, we don't need genetically modified crops to feed humanity. Um, we can do that perfectly well without genetically modified crops. I don't want to be a Luddite. I don't want to think that you know, genetically modified anything is all wrong. But what I do take is the precautionary principle. And had those companies, any of them, produced something that was actually worthwhile you know, that it was of benefit to farmers or to, to society at large, I would have applauded them. But they haven't. So far, they've talked the talk, but they haven't walked the walk. They talk about, we're going to, this is the future, this is going to feed humanity, and all it's done is feed their bank accounts and nothing more. It hasn't brought any advantage. In fact, it's brought big disadvantages to agriculture. Um, in America now, they have serious problems that you can't grow anything other than GM crops for soya bean because they had the legislation was stacked against the ordinary farmer that if he grew a non-GM crop and a GM pollen blew into his crop, he could no longer save the seed because it was no longer his. It was actually owned by Monsanto, who, who owned the patent for the GM. And so he couldn't, he couldn't save a seed anymore. All the seed companies uh, went out of business. The few remaining who tried to fight it were sued by Monsanto and put out of business and bankrupted. And so you have a situation where, you know, their behaviour has not shown an iota of, um, of interest in wanting to serve humanity. It's only been serving their bank accounts. And I have no truck with that. I have no interest in wanting to support that, okay? Uh, because I haven't seen it being of any use. And it's supporting a system of agriculture that they are proposing, which is highly intensive, chemically-based agriculture, which is destroying our planet. I have no interest in wanting to support that. So that's where my stance comes from, purely on observation of the fact, not of the hype.
Um, I suppose that's... And then the second thing would be, anyway... Um, it's it, these uh, genetic mo- modified um, engineering is analogous to somebody going inside a plant with uh, a power drill and hammering away without actually realizing what they're doing properly. We have no idea what the knock-on effects and nature of this is going to be, um, and so or, or for or for a whole variety of things. We we have no idea down the line what the effects when this stuff gets out into the wider environment, because it doesn't just stay in the soya bean, it'll, it'll, it'll transfer to all the relatives of the soya bean. Um, there's real dangers in that. And, and when they produce this genetically modified possibility of being able to insert a gene in that stops the plant being able to produce seed, so that the plan of that was that if you have plants that can't produce seed, you always have to go back to the parent company to get the seed because you, your own plant, your own plants won't produce seed. And I, I don't even remember the name of it. I they had a they had a special name for it. Um, but that could you imagine if that got out into nature? You can't bring it back in again. Once it's out there, there's no way you can go out and bring it back in again. So the precautionary principle would be, be really, really careful about what you're doing here because you don't know what the long-term knock-on effects will be. And so, um, so therefore, um, the organic movement has taken a stance that um, it, none of it has, has shown any indications of supporting a sustainable system of agriculture. It is only being used for the benefit of the bank accounts of the companies that are, that are investing in it. And, and they haven't been very nice. Thank you very much for another really interesting <laughs> and informative talk. And but I can't wait to go home, actually, and make that endive salad. <laughs> I bought a whole bunch of mm. uh, really tasty veggies mm. from, your, from your stall at the market today. And I'm going to make a massive pot of curry and big bowl of salad and uh, then I'll be out of vegetables midweek again. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to start buying more when you come to our store. <laughs> I know, I know. We, we need bigger fridge and mm. do you know what I need? I need a house with a garden so I can put food and vegetables in the boxes and store it outside. Mm. Because I have a big bag outside on a windowsill and I put things like the salads and, and fresh herbs and, and broccoli and kale I store it in a bag and I um, have it outside sitting on the windowsill there's only one bag that I can fit there <laughs> it remains fresh for a very long time but if I would put this food in the fridge it doesn't stay as fresh and I'm, it doesn't taste as nice to be honest if I store it in the fridge for a long period of time it tastes much nicer when it's outside yeah I think once it gets below a certain temperature most foods denature a little bit and I know tomatoes you should never put tomatoes in a fridge because then the natural sweetness of tomatoes is, is lost and um, the sugars turn to starch when they go below a certain temperature and so um, and it's the same for a lot of vegetables that on the one hand you've got to keep them cool but if they get too cool um, it denatures them. Uh, not all vegetables. Funny enough, the brassica family um, love a good frost. You know, things like kale and cabbage, if they get frosted, and parsnips is another one, they actually, the sugars go sweeter. <laughs> so oh, wow. it's not for everything. It's some things you shouldn't put in the fridge, and some things it doesn't do them any harm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, that's a tricky one. My father grew up in Donegal, and we went every summer always to visit my grandmother when I was a small boy. And um, her fridge was a, uh, a box with wire mesh on it, um, doors of wire mesh in the front on a north-facing wall outside her kitchen. <laughs> and she kept everything in there, the butter, everything in there all year round. And that was her fridge. That was the old-fashioned fridge. Uh-huh. And, and it worked very well for them. And I don't see... I mean, I keep all our vegetables in a yard. Uh, I mean, we have a yard attached to our house, which is north-facing as well, so it doesn't get any sun. And uh, I keep all our vegetables out there, and it's nice and cool. And it's very rare I ever have to put anything in the fridge. If I take something and cut it open, sometimes with a celeriac, because when I'm only using half of it, I'll put the other half possibly after I... Once I've actually broken the seal on the, on the vegetable, I'll put it in the fridge just for, for safekeeping. But... Um, by and large, 
most of our vegetables, you know, I'm ca collecting it nearly every day or every second day from the farm. So we don't keep an awful lot of stuff at home. We eat it as soon as we bring it home. So we're very lucky. Yeah, that's the best way. Yeah. Grow your own, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Or else what we need is them. Um, we need people to, more people to support the kind of thing we're doing here. And to be honest with you, you know, we're a, we're a market garden growing vegetables and but most of our customers are in a 15 mile radius mm -hmm. and the actual within a, a five mile radius wouldn't be even a quarter of our customers we should have all our customers within a two mile radius there's enough people in this two mile radius to support this farm so there should be 20 or 30 of these farms all over belfast as uh, supporting a, a, the different areas and you, then people could have the benefit of very fresh vegetables twice three times a week and um grown locally sustainably and tasting delicious, oh, and that's that what you would amazing? hope. Well, it's what we've got to move to. That's what that's what excites me about uh, doing this blueprint, because then I'm hoping it'll help other people. But it's also excites me that you know this change we need to make has to be to do that. That that's the solution to so many of the problems around packaging and climate change. Would be that if we had organic market gardens growing fresh produce um, locally that people could collect, then. Um, it would solve some of the problems around packaging and around climate change and and sustainability, um, and uh, and then you know we can what we can do then is grow the 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 big root crops and the grains and things. Let them grow outside the cities as they used to in the old days and haul them in in large loads. You know, cost effectively and environmentally soundly as well, and. You know, that's the future. We've got to redesign everything we do to make it more sustainable so that there is a future for our children. The seventh generation principle, that what you do today, you do in mindfulness of the seventh generation to come. No pressure. That's, well, we've got to do it. We've got to start doing it. and We've got to start thinking like that. Um, and that's what gets me out of my bed every morning to come here, w get my weary bones working again. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that weary. You're not as old as you think. <laughs> well, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay for 65. I'm doing grand. Thank you. Well, hopefully there will be another 65, maybe. Who knows? You're Who be knows? Here in another 50 years. <laughs> well, if I get another 20, I'll be very happy. <laughs> and I've got lots of young people, very, very, very capable and uh, excited young people working here now who, you know, are very keen to take the baton and run with it. And, you know, it's great that there are people coming behind me with enthusiasm. And, um, and I just hope that there's going to be more of them. That's what I hope. Well, I hope that John will be here for a very, very long time to teach us all the ways of growing our food. What a man. I have a massive admiration for John and everybody else who grows organic food this way because without these people we would starve really if you think about it these guys are the main reason why we can eat in a healthy way why we can eat real food and um, I really like John he's um, he's an incredible man he's really smart kind and very generous actually and in the last episode, I promised to talk a little bit about a charity that we raised money for last year at John's farm, at Helen's Bay Organic Gardens. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. It was last year in the summer and we set up an outdoor cafe and had a great, really sunny day. And we spent that afternoon eating and making delicious and healthy food and drinking all sorts of really tasty stuff and learning about the organic way from John and John and his beautiful wife were such great hosts to us and help us to raise nearly 600 pounds that afternoon just by putting on a healthy tea party you know it, it was a great afternoon and I really hope that we can do it again sometime we had Eat raw, feel great. There, Barbara was there with her raw foods. Um, Varin from Azura Health was providing coffee. And in the last episode, we mentioned that Trina, the tree nutritious health coach, um, was there as well with her delicious treats. Jacqueline from Cultivate. 
And all these people generously provided food and drink and we had such an amazing time. We also had some amazing sponsorships from Panacea Drinks, Skinny Malinkis, Copton and Brown, Amberline Preserves and the Cultured Club, the Little House of Calm and even Johnny Higgs Hair who provided a hair makeover voucher. And, you know, all of this was for a great little local charity called Mind Your Mate and Yourself. It's a Newcastle County Down based charity and it's a great organisation helping thousands of people each year providing counselling, support groups, drop-in service and alternative therapies. And there are many people in this country with a variety of mental health issues and not everyone knows that there is help available. And not everyone who knows there is a help available is fortunate enough to be able to afford that help. And these guys make the help accessible to everyone. They raise awareness and they reach out to anyone and everyone who needs it. And um, the reason why I want to talk about it is that it's because of amazing people like John and everyone else I mentioned already who can get together and do something great, enjoyable and at the same time raise funds to make it possible for a small charity like this one to help all the people who need it. And sadly, there are way too many of those people in need in this country. So now is the time for the big reveal. The reason why I'm talking about Mai Mai is that myself and a small team of crazies are going to raise some funds for this charity this year by taking a hiking trip in Morocco at the end of the year. Now, we are going to hike up the second highest peak in Africa, which is Tupkal. And while we are doing this, we're hoping to raise awareness and money, obviously, for those in need. So there is a logic as to why we are doing an outdoor event. Being outdoors and being active has a very positive impact on our mental health, which is why this activity feels so appropriate for raising funds for a mental health charity. And why Morocco? Well, Obviously, we didn't have to need to go as far as that. But last year, myself and my partner took a road trip around Morocco and we absolutely fell in love with the Atlas Mountains. Now, I'm no hiking professional or enthusiast. In fact, I'm a very lazy person. I only like doing sports that are either slow or allow you to either sit on your butt or lie down. So, you know, I like things like swimming and cycling and I skull on the lagan um, and all of this, you're kind of moving from, from one place to another while you're either sitting down or lying down. So, you know, I don't run. Um, that to me feels just waste of energy and hiking is enjoyable to me to a certain point uh, because I like being outdoors and being out in the nature but, you know, hiking somewhere like Tupkal is a very different league. And so we're going to have to train for it. Well, I will. But we fell in love with the Atlas Mountains and the nature. And the mountains are just beautiful. And so we knew we wanted to come back again. And when we decided we were going to undertake this trip, we kind of thought, you know, why do we have to do it just for the enjoyment? Why can't we do something good while we're doing it and we thought about it and at the end of last year we put together a small team and decided well let's try and raise some funds for a charity so that's what we are going to do so please keep your eyes open for a Tupkal 2018 page on social media we will launch a facebook page and just giving page very soon so you can follow our journey from our training sessions and we will need to do quite a few of them and um, training for the event and you can follow our trip from when we get on the plane in um, in belfast to the conquering of tupkal itself now, that trip to Morocco should happen at the end of October, start of November. We will keep everyone posted. We will also, apart from our training session, we'll also be organizing a few sponsored hikes in the Moor Mountains. So you can get involved by joining us on one of these as well. You can also share our events once they're all out there. And of course, you can donate. All the money we will collect from the very start to the very end Every single penny will go directly to the charity. It is important for us to let everyone know that any expenses involved 
in this trip will be covered by, our, by ourselves. Every single team member is covering their own trip expenses and none of the funds we raise will be going towards that. Every single penny that you guys give up for this charity will go to the charity. And if you'd like to know how the donations made to MyMy are used, you can go onto their website, which is mymy.org.uk, mymy.org.uk, and you can find out more there. In fact, please do check out the website and learn about the charity, why they do what they do and how much wonderful work they're doing because I think it's really important what they do. Now, quickly back to the food. Um, John and I talked a bit about endive, so I will share with you a very simple recipe. I'm not sure if I can actually call it a recipe. It's more of a salad suggestion. All you need to do is to get an endive, or you can make it with any winter salad or lettuce, but I do recommend getting endive. And if you are based in Northern Ireland, and if you can get to St. George's Market in Belfast, even better, because with endive, you can get Helen's base chicory that's another ingredient that you'll need for this so this is a very good salad that helps digestion it's quite bitter but i really like it it's um bitter is really good for your liver and this salad is full of digestive enzymes uh, full of the good bacteria and you can eat it before meal during meal after meal all day long i just love it so all you need is one endive, one chicory, small bunch of flat leaf parsley, one lemon, um, you'll need to squeeze the juice out of it, and really good quality cold pressed, preferably organic extra virgin olive oil. And you just rinse the endive, separate the endive leaves and cut it or tear it into pieces. Then wash and chop the chicory and I chop it into ribbons. You can chop it whichever way you like and rinse and finally chop the parsley and toss it all together in a bowl and then just have the lemon, squeeze some lemon juice over it and drizzle over it some olive oil and there you go. That's all there is to it. Super easy, super tasty and really, really good for you. I always make a big bowl of it and then... Um, Keep it in the fridge, either in a glass bowl with a lid. It keeps fresh for about two days. Obviously, it's best when you eat it fresh. But, you know, if you have a busy lifestyle like most of us do, you can make a big bunch of it and then just take it as you need it. As always, you can download this recipe on social media. It will be available as JPEG in our Instagram, Twitter and Facebook page. And um, if you'd like to get it in a PDF form, you can join our podcast group on Facebook. It's called The Sweet Spot on a Farm, of course. And uh, you can join up and download all the shared recipes to date in a PDF form in the file section. You can also learn about our future guests ahead of the podcast and ask them questions. And I'm also hoping to be running some more competitions. So come and join the party. And... That's it. Have a great couple of weeks. If you live in Northern Ireland and haven't subscribed to Helen's Bay Organics box scheme yet, go on to www.helensbayorganic.com and check it out. It's a really great way to get organic vegetables delivered to your door. Go get yourself some winter lettuce or endive and um, stay healthy. Until next time. Bye. As always, your host was myself, Susanna, the author of The Sweet Spot. Music has been provided by Mark J. Adair of Syncwood Studios and artwork by Gemma O'Hagan of Gemma O'Hagan Design. Thank you for listening.